welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Brenna, we I'm haven't so done excited. an interview in so, so long, <laughs> but... <know>. Um, <laughs> When I noticed that our very special guest was actually following me on Twitter and I could DM her, (laughs) I had to reach out and see if she would come on the podcast. And I'm so happy to say that we have Meredith Russo with us. Joe slid into my DMs so that I could slide into (laughs) all of your hearts. (laughs) Which I don't advise men to do to women because it's really (laughs) uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to slide into someone's heart, and it could get in the way of the pumping action necessary to keep them alive. I agree. (laughs) No humans in your muscle tissue. (laughs) The average human is far too large to be inside of someone's muscle tissue. The average, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've seen inner space. I know it gets crazy small sometimes. Oh, man. My point of reference was definitely Magic School Bus, but yours works too. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like in some ways... Inner space is less disturbing than Magic School Bus. <laughs> there are some episodes of that show where they get real wet and wild. It's oh, very dear. true. Uh. All of a sudden, I have to label this episode explicit now. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, okay. So, Meredith, we are really, really big fans of Huge yours. Fans. We've read Aww. both Birthday and If I Were Your Girl. We've talked about both of them on the show at a couple of different points. So... We have a set of questions that we're going to ask you, but as we indicated before we began recording, really just happy to take the conversation wherever it may go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're grateful you're here, and we thought we'd, I don't know, open by asking you if you would give us kind of a 30-second bio. Who is Meredith Russo? Uh, yeah, no, that's uh, completely that's completely fine. Here I go. <laughs> Listen, as a millennial, one thing I love is self-promotion and talking about <laughs> <laughs> uh, And I'm very good at it. So let's, this is all sarcasm. <laughs> My name is Meredith Russo. I am a neurodiverse trans woman from southeast Tennessee, specifically southern Appalachia, more specifically kind of Chattanooga and the areas to the north of it. I have a cat named Shadow who is a torty and a bad person, <laughs> but is occasionally uh, shows little bits of empathy. Um, I'm kind of a giant dork, but in a very like art school way, do my best to keep a sort of a measure of ironic distance from a lot of the more embarrassing <laughs> things that I like, <laughs> even though I do actually like things like Star Trek wholeheartedly. My first book, If I Was Your Girl, came out in 2016 and won the Stonewall Award and was a finalist for some other things. My second book, Birthday, came out this year. I have been featured in the New York Times and some uh, fiction and essay anthologies. And I just moved to New York at the beginning of this year, which is... I don't regret the decision, but I feel like there were probably better times to move to New York. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fair point. (laughs) It's a hard time to be a New Yorker, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's me. I guess I'm an Aries, Sun, Cancer, Moon, Scorpio, Rising. My favorite video game is Shadow of the Colossus. Nice. I think that's that's everything people would want to know about me. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great bio. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so because Birthday is the most recent book, we'll briefly touch on that. So we're going to put you back on the hot seat. Can you give listeners a quick logline of what Birthday is all about in case they aren't familiar with it? 
Yeah, sure. And it turns out uh, that people in New York don't have air conditioning and it's been very hot. So I'm already used to being in a seat that is incredibly hot. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't you can't curveball me. But uh, the elevator pitch for birthday is that there is a cis boy and a trans girl uh, born at the same time in a small town just outside of Knoxville who are semi-mystically attached to one another and very clearly destined for one another. And we track them from their 13th birthday when the trans girl makes an abortive attempt to tell the cis boy that she is a girl and track them all the way through to their 18th birthday as they uh, grow and overcome the difficulties of class and mental illness and grieving and gender in a small Appalachian town and grow apart and come together and eventually, spoiler alert, fall in love. (laughs) <laughs> or realize that they were in love all along. Such right. a good kissing scene, Meredith. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Brenna really likes the kissing. I really do. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I like, but I'm vexed by kissing, which is how I ended up in this racket. I think that we give our attention to the things that confuse or frustrate us the most. And so if I were good at romance, I don't think that I would be writing romance, if that makes sense. Oh, I love that. Well, that it's a perfect segue into our next question, which is we like to know how the authors we talk to get into writing. And specifically, since we're a YA show, what is it about YA that drew you in? So I'm hearing that kissing is part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's a frustration. I am mystified by love and romance. And so I want to know more about them. And so I simulate them over and over in my head to try to figure them out and fiction is sort of the 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 waste byproduct of running those simulations all the time i got into writing originally i started off as a musician oh really yeah when i was in middle school uh, believe it or not i was not an especially athletic child so kind of the only other extracurricular at the poorly funded school the zone school i went to in middle school was Uh, music and I played a brass instrument and I was super good at it and then I was getting bullied constantly and uh, bless my mom's heart I think my parents figured out that if I stayed in my zone school I probably wasn't going to survive uh, to the end of high school Um, and they really pushed and got me into a magnet school for the arts in the city where I lived Uh, and but I had to keep doing music for that because that was kind of like my ticket in right but I was also if I do say so Kind of not by the standards of Zoomers who have had like Wacom tablets since they were four <laughs> years old, but I was a, I was a decent little artist, and so my plan was I'm going to use music to get me through high school, and then I'm going to be a graphic designer or, or or like a freelance illustrator or something. But this whole time in middle school and then in high school, I was writing fan fiction constantly, and I oh, didn't nice. think of it as meaningful. I just thought of it as something I did for fun. Like, I was obsessed with Sigourney Weaver and the Aliens universe. I was reading the Aliens Dark Horse comics when I was in middle school, and I wrote a lot of, like, stuff that kind of ripped off aliens or that was very clearly an aliens pastiche. And then I got to high school, and nearly all of my friends were girls. It's crazy. I, I had no idea why at the time, but nearly all my friends were girls, and they were all, like, anime girls right Mm. and so all they wanted to do all day was write fan fiction about harry and draco and ron kissing or fan fan fiction about like final fantasy 7 or kingdom hearts and that was kind of that was kind of the the context in which those friendships happened and i sort of you know kept doing it just to hang out with my friends 
But yeah, never thought of it. I never thought of it like with music or art as anything that would get me anywhere. And then I got to college and kind of burned out on all the other stuff that I had intended to do and Mm. took a creative writing class on a lark. And it turned out I was halfway decent at it. And it helped me process a lot of my feelings in a way that art and music never had. And now here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Why specifically young adult? What is it about that sort of moment in life that you find captivating when you write? There's a universality to adolescence, and I think especially as a trans person, adolescence is an incredibly fraught but interesting time because we do, because we go, uh, at least the trans people who go on hormones go through adolescence twice, mm. so we're stuck thinking right. about it a lot. But if you think about it, every human being who lives past the age of 20 is definitionally going to have at least three things in common with every other human being who has made it past, say, 20. And that is that they will be born, they will go through adolescence, even if they have some kind of endocrine disorder, they will go through the social period of adolescence. Mm. They will be born, they will go through adolescence, and they will die. Mm. And babies don't know how to read. (laughs) And also don't have disposable income. And I feel like the dead are probably just like, reading books by shoving their ectoplasmic faces into them and not paying because they're a bunch of bums. Yeah. They're very passive consumers. They're very passive consumers. And there's not really a lot of consumer reports on what they like. Uh, whereas <laughs> everyone who is currently like alive and over the age of, say, 15 is either currently going through adolescence or remembers it. And so mm. it's kind of the one thing that you could take any human being on the face of the earth above a certain age that they'll all have in common... And it's also incredibly fraught and traumatic and complex. It is this moment in all of our lives where we undergo this, like, body horror science fiction (laughs) metamorphosis that we kind of just, like... (laughs) It's like the George Carlin joke about sleeping, where it's like, if you explained sleeping to an alien, they would think it was the craziest thing (laughs) anyone had ever talked about. If you explained adolescence to an alien, they would be like, oh, yeah, so just, like, your bones twist out of shape and, like... (laughs) Everything about your body changes and, like, the the priorities and, like, texture of your personality all shift under your feet like sand and it's just fine. It's okay. Nobody freaks out. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 it's an incredibly loaded time physically, emotionally, and socially uh, that I think everyone can relate to. Mm. Right. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, as people in their late 30s who host a podcast about young adult <laughs> literature, I think we agree on all points, hey, Joe? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I find it continually rewarding. Mm -hmm. Like, I find that the nature of the storytelling around this period of time is constantly producing both new and incredibly familiar texts. And I love, I don't think it's a point of tension, but I love the intersection. Yes. And it's, it's especially important for trans fiction, because I don't think our art should universally center our trauma as oppressed people. But sort of uniquely among the human population, even among the LGBT population. Adolescence is a site of intense trauma Mm. for Mm -hmm. trans people, which makes covering this part of our lives, if you want to tell a certain kind of trans story, incredibly important. Mm. Yeah. So building on that then, because the next question is about what the experience of writing is like. And I mean, I don't want to be an armchair psychologist, but it feels like there's a biographical component in both If I Was Your Girl as well as Birthday. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through what the experience of writing is like for you. And I realize that's a loaded question. Right, 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 right. So I think that I think that all fiction 
is already always. And you can tell I have at least a bachelor's degree because I'm throwing out uh, phrases like already, always. Always already. <laughs> always already, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that fiction is always already biographical. And in some ways, mm-hmm. I think that fiction is more biographical than, say, an autobiography or a memoir because people edit when they are telling mm-hmm. you about themselves on purpose, but people right. tell on themselves when they are telling you stories. They reveal their priorities and preoccupations in a way that they would not necessarily if they were activating the part of their brain that was uh, literally telling you about themselves. And so I am not thin. I would not say that I am conventionally attractive the way that Amanda is. I did grow up poor, but I did not grow up poor the way that Morgan did. And if I was your girl... The, the specific details of these trans characters' lives are different, but in each book you can tell what I was thinking about at the time. Mm. And I wrote If I Was Your Girl when I was just starting to transition, and I was thinking about how kind of out I wanted to be as a trans person, and thinking, because I had only ever seen stories about people who were transitioning or who wanted to, what does a life after this look like? After I put it behind me, what does a life look like? Uh, What is the shape of that? How does one not necessarily put trauma behind them, but how does one move forward in a healthy way with those scars? And that was If I Was Your Girl. And I wrote a birthday after my mother, who I had just reunited with after a sort of long period of estrangement, survived breast cancer. And I was on my own sort of mental health journey and sort of finally from a distance of a few years kind of grappling with what my pre-transition self had been like and what that had looked like because one thing that I ran into a lot was uh, that I went to art school and had relatively liberal parents who did react at first kind of badly when I came out as an adult but for a teen in the early 2000s I think I was pretty uniquely positioned. I was in an environment where if I had insisted that I wanted to transition, I would have at least been sent to a therapist who could have then provided resources. And if it was decided Mm -hmm. I needed to, especially in the South, I was in a pretty unique position that I would have been allowed to, but I still wasn't willing Mm -hmm. to be that vulnerable with anyone around me or to admit Mm -hmm. these things to myself, even though I'd known since I was three. And I wanted to know why. And Morgan is kind of my exploration of why. And Eric is my exploration of, you know, I'd been hurt by boys and men when I was living as a boy. But then after transitioning, things like catcalling and and mansplaining and manspreading and, and, and <laughs> certain, certain worse uh, things that are best left out of a podcast all began to happen. Um, and I wanted to know, because I am a hopeful feminist, I wanted to know what does a good, what does good masculinity look like? Especially because I know so many Mm -hmm. trans men struggling with this question Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they once lived as girls and experienced a lot of the same horrors that uh, women experience, even though they weren't really women. And now they carry all of this guilt with them for being masculine. I wanted to investigate what does a good masculinity look like? Because there are all of these cis men and trans men who I don't want them to have to abandon being masculine people. And I want to see if I can show them a good, healthy way to do that. Wow. 
That's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> mm. Well, I was just going to say, I, I mean, obviously and explicitly, your work is really important within the YA space for dealing with trans issues. I'm also, especially reading Birthday, you know, Joe and I talk often on the podcast about how uninterested or perhaps disinterested much of mainstream YA is with class as an issue. I would say your work and Jeff Setner's work, a willingness to engage in stories of like real poverty, um, poverty at a level, you know, not just I can't go to this school. I can't go to the dance. Yeah, but like sort of really deep poverty and how that impacts the teen experience too, I think is another reason that birthday especially I found quite vital for that reason. Yeah, and Jeff Zintner is a lovely man who I have met and is amazing and always wears a cool jacket. And he was the, <laughs> he was the MC at the release party for Birthday, actually. I saw he had blurbed oh, it. Wow. I know, he's, ama- yeah. he's amazing. Yeah. So I think, I think this is a perspective that Jeff and I bring as Southerners. Mm-hmm. And I have been experiencing, sort of throughout my life, whenever I would go outside the South, and now since I have moved outside of the South, that stories are told about the South, Mm. and there are works from the South within the American literary canon. You know, your your Faulkners, your Flannery O'Connors. But that we are still, you know, outside of pockets, like the Bronx. I say we, even though I left. Mm -hmm. The South is still the poorest region in the United States. It is the region with the most political and economic inequality. It is the region that has per capita and by raw numbers, the largest number of racialized people, black people, and LGBT people anywhere in the country. Um, And it is a region marked by like tremendous ongoing political violence. Mm. And it's viewed from the outside as this benighted hellhole full of... Mm -hmm the bad guys from Deliverance who hate everyone who's different from them. And so you still don't see the South as told by Southerners who are not members of the Southern owning class. And here I'm Mm -hmm. letting my Marxism show. My Marxism show. Uh, You don't see the South reported by Southerners who are not members of the owning class very frequently. And I think that my work and Jeff's work is a good reminder of why that is important. Yeah. And why Southerners are not somehow uniquely, essentially oppressive and why solidarity without (laughs) and why solidarity without these kind of like regional or generational hang ups between poor and depressed people is so important. I think as Canadian readers, we have a tendency to read American literature as like New England (laughs) <laughs> and then occasionally California or Texas, and then everything else is there be dragons. Yeah. And the mainstream media that we get doesn't complicate that particularly. No. So it, it has been a real education for me finding both your and Jeff Zettner's work to really rethink some of my own stereotypes and assumptions about the South and the people who live there. Yeah, I, I saw a, a joke map on Facebook that was like an American travel guide for Canadians. And it was the sort of jokingly labeling different parts of America and all of the Southeast, except for Texas was colored red. And it was labeled basically the Christian version of Iraq. And everybody thought it was so funny. And I was like, this is offensive in like four different ways. This is is deeply problematique, everybody. It's especially frustrating because, like, I've been to Hamilton, Ontario, and Mm -hmm. I've seen 
more Confederate flags in Hamilton, Ontario mm-hmm. than I did in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the last five years. Mm. I have seen photos of Confederate flags in Tokyo. Um, this is not a uniquely Southern problem. And it's, yeah, it's, it seems like people are paying at least a little more attention to it. I, I, I think it's easy and you experience it a lot here. I think even within America, because we're so big, I think it's easy for Canadians to look at America and say, oh, those Americans are so racist while they ignore First Nations people being oh, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, abused. Yeah. And it's easy for like Yankees and Californians to look at the South and go, oh, those Southerners are so horrible and ignore the fact that New York is the most segregated, I think the most segregated city in the country and that like police violence and racial inequality was so bad in California that that was where the Black Panthers uh, started as a response, right? Mm-hmm. So these are these are useful scapegoats to stop people from assessing their own moral responsibilities at home. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I'm going to transition off this and back to your writing. <laughs> okay, sorry. This is such no. a pe- this is such a we no. love this kind of stuff. We love this kind honestly. of stuff. Okay. <laughs> and we talk about it a we do talk about it a lot because it is um a, a very knee-jerk Canadian response. We're not as bad as though one cannot <laughs> imagine right. a better future than not as bad. Well, yeah, it's like if if Saruman looks at you and goes, "Hey, I'm not as bad as that Sauron guy. You're not supposed to go. You're not supposed to go sick, dude. I I can't wait to be an Urukai. This rules." <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but to get back to the question of writing, we do have mostly because we know we have a lot of listeners who are aspiring YA writers themselves. I'm thinking about your writing and its evolution over time or across books. I mean, I'm guessing these are not your only two manuscripts that have ever existed but in in terms of your process and how you write how has it evolved over time since those early fan fiction explorations right well especially between the two books yeah yeah halfway through if i was your girl i realized that i was writing a much more mainstream quote-unquote book than i initially set out to write because i have been what we will call a political radical for most (laughs) of my life I had to sat, sit down and have a real conversation with myself about uh, what my intentions were for this book. And the conclusion I came to was I am still also a poor person who needs money and needs to write a book that will sell to people who have money. Mm-hmm. And that requires certain compromises. But I did demand that they allow me to put the author's note at the end of the book, sort of explaining those decisions. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, we were at a moment where like Caitlin, the Caitlyn Jenner had just come out. Janet Mock's book had just come out. Laverne Cox was on Orange is the New Black. Everyone was talking about trans people. And I knew that probably a lot of cis people were going to pick up my book Mm -hmm. and that this was maybe going to be their first literary contact with a trans person. And so I really, even though I didn't necessarily want to, I needed to do sort of a trans 101. Mm -hmm. And so I told myself I will explain my decisions at the back of the book, but I am also going to drop the frogs who are my cis readers in this pot that is my work, and I'm going to very slowly turn up the heat. Mm. <laughs> so my intention is with every book to get a little bit rawer, 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 to get a little bit more raw, <laughs> a little bit weirder, a little bit edgier, a little bit more kind of like honest about the actual lived reality of trans people, and just see how long I can do that before the frogs notice the water is boiling, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> that was part of it. I think that that was most of it. It's a very intentional amping up of the honesty of the books. Hmm. 
I have to relate an interesting experience that we had. So Brenna tends to read books first and then I read them afterwards after she tells me that they're excellent and that I should spend my time on them. (laughs) So she had talked about If I Was Your Girl and then I read it. But interestingly enough, when I talked about reading the book on the pod, Brenna and I both, I think mistakenly at the time, called it a fairy tale or a fantasy. In hindsight, there was a mistake that we made that we talked about how the ending of the book is so positive mm-hmm. and how it filled us with joy because it felt like there was, I don't know, Bretta, like, do we say an escape or like a, like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? There are so few trans characters in YA and so often they are treated so badly by their authors and it was yeah. just so wonderful to not have that happen. But we did end up getting into trouble because we had listeners who wrote in and said, you did not adequately prepare me for the trauma that exists in this book. Uh, Yeah, that's a conversation that's been happening about the book. And this is a conversation, and I, this is a guess, but I'm going to guess that the people who said that were themselves younger trans people. We don't know for sure, but yeah. We sort of lean towards that direction. Right. I, and I can only report, I've had this conversation with older trans people. And if, if you are one of the people who complained, and this is not uh, true for you, then obviously my, my, my experience is only my experience and my sample size is pretty scattershot. But it seems like, because my intention was to write basically uh, like a trans Appalachian John Hughes story. <laughs> But to include, you know, to to be a little honest about what this trans character would be carrying around with her, because to a certain extent, the identity of transness exists as a political identity because of these traumas. And without it, you know, characters who exist in like fantasy settings where they just like transitioned with magic or whatever, or like nobody ever treats them badly beca- because of it are kind of not legible to me as the same kind of thing that I am. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, that needed to be part of what Amanda was doing but my intention was yeah I want this to be a happy book Hmm. with a a slightly bittersweet ending but a a happy book so you were tuned into my intentions there and something that I and some other older especially older trans people have experienced is that there are especially American especially suburban especially white and middle class trans people coming up now who have still very much had difficult lives and face oppression but who are to a certain extent not feral the way the way that i and a lot of older trans people are and that seems to be the division in the people who have responded badly who have said like oh it's irresponsible that she put all these things in the book is it's the trans people who and they're still trans right they're still oppressed but it's the trans people who have had i'm trying to figure out a way to say this that is not unkind uh but it's the trans people who have had slightly easier lives whereas the trans people i have encountered who have kind of vibed with the book more have been racialized and black or grew up poor or grew up in places like utah or the rural south where the the trauma that is vibrating inside of them uh resonates with the trauma that is vibrating inside of me and a lot of older trans people i know but you were not off the mark with (laughs) with with your interpretation of, of how i intended it i think if i could go back and redo it and honestly with birthday i would include uh trigger warnings Mm -hmm. or i would say you know 
there's a website called Does the Dog Die? <laughs> and people are welcome to people are welcome to put entries for my books. Uh, and I as I as an author would absolutely respect you doing that. And you can help people you can help people avoid those. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, it's just a whole spiel. Yeah, but it, it is it is funny. That all aside, and let me know if I'm talking too long. Something I have run into, I am surprised that you two clued in to the intention of the book being kind of like fluffy and romantic and nice, because most of the time, what I experience is most other trans people who are not of the like kind of yelling on Twitter variety. <laughs> like uh, Casey Plett wrote a review of the book for Plenitude that I love and hold and cherish, kind of recognize it as a fluffy romance story. Mm. Whereas a lot of cis people who read it, like, walk away from the bad things that happened to Amanda in the book and are like, this book was so tragic. It was so sad. It opened my eyes to how hard trans people's lives are. And it just reminds me of this phenomenon of, like, being trans and describing, like, maybe something that happened to you that day that you just learned to think of as normal. Mm -hmm. And, like, watching, like, the cis people at brunch kind of, like, their pupils dilate and their mouths hang open and you realize, Mm -hmm. like, oh, right, okay, (laughs) this wasn't... Uh, this wasn't normal, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we just... Sorry, I'm not... I was about to equate myself with you, and I'm like... Oh, no, you're fine! <laughs> uh, I am not the sort of person who yells at people on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> My life has been saved by too many poor Appalachian, like, working-class dudes with wizards airbrushed on their vans who, like, <laughs> say problematic <laughs> jokes but will be there at three in the morning to, like, pick you up and talk with you if something bad happens. For me to be hung up on, like, proper language or decorum, I think that's a bourgeois right. trap. Mm. So I know your heart's in the right place, so fire away. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I think it's just, it's the way that we carry trauma around and... The conversations that I've had in the LGBTQ community has been kind of like, okay, white cis gay men, unfortunately, have become, for some reason, the leaders of this group. And, Mm -hmm. you know, ever since we got the right to gay marriage, we feel like, okay, our problems are solved. And (laughs) what is everybody else complaining about? And I think those of us who are more progressive and woke... We often look at, say, like, okay, now the time for the trans community has come. Like, how can we help to make them feel more accepted, get them the rights and the needs? And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's been really disheartening to watch what's happened in the U.S. in the last couple of months with regard to trans rights just be walked back. Right. I don't know. Like, I don't think we should ever eliminate the trauma. Like, we can't not talk about bad things because they make people uncomfortable. Exactly. But it's it's still hard. (laughs) It is hard. And I think a lot, especially about the white cis men thing. Um, And to circle back to a thing we talked about earlier, this is why, and maybe I'm just a Marxist, but this is why I think that we should never not be talking about class Mm -hmm. or that we at least need a material component to our analysis of Mm -hmm. these things. Because even within the trans community, there are white trans women who grew up relatively wealthy and work in tech Mm -hmm. and there are poor latino or black trans women and those experiences are not the same right and there are rich white trans women who work in tech and there are relatively poor like white cis gay boys raised by mormon families who are living a nightmare Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and these things are not universal i think privileged discourse to a certain extent is useful as a descriptive sociological tool 
but applied as praxis is absolute brain poison (laughs) that dissolves solidarity and that subverts useful material analysis of the situations of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And it just gives you these incredibly arbitrary identity-based lines about sort of who is allowed to speak and when and who is allowed to say what that I think we could all use a little more intentionality around. And Brenna, I think you have something to say. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've come to know my... um, (laughs) I'm just, I'm thinking also about whose trauma gets to be normalized and how that functions in literature. Like, I am a cis white woman. I've read a lot of books about rape and um, sexual assault where the protagonist gets to move past that trauma or that trauma may inform aspects of their personality but isn't a stand-in for their personality and so some of the reaction to the traumatic aspects of if i was your girl i found kind of disheartening because there was this suggestion that this is a book about how hard trans lives are where a book like speak which i love which is in many ways obviously horrifying, but is ultimately about sort of triumph and resilience. And I don't know if I'm making my point clearly, but it's just, it seems you to are. me that we, you know, we had Kai Cheng Tom on months ago oh, now. I love her. Yeah, she's amazing. And we had a great conversation about particularly the Canadian literary marketplace and the demand that we have yeah. for particularly stories of Indigenous trauma. And we were talking about that in relation to how we have this expectation that a trans narrative is going to be a story of trauma. And and I wonder if that's part of the reaction that because there is any hardship in Amanda's story, it is read as a story of trauma instead of a romance. Right. And I think, and I think part of what's going on also is, and this is still a very nebulous analysis that I'm working on, but I think of it as the Steven universe <laughs> the Steven Universification of sort of like cultural analysis. Go and, on. And appetites. I want to hear this to say, so much. I do like Steven Universe and I do like a number of pieces of children's media. And I write YA, for goodness sake. But I think that, I don't know. And I was talking to my friend Kyle Lukoff about this just the other day that. It feels as a writer who has studied writing, obviously, and has studied all of the like very like technical stuff behind how you make a plot. It feels as if no one wants a second act anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel sometimes, especially when I watch like younger media for younger people, or when I watch like stuff like Doctor Who, which I guess is still a children's show, that people want the cool moments from the trailer, and they want the grand dramatic speech, and they want the moving pieces as grist for the mill of like their ship dynamics and stuff, but are uninterested as kind of a symptom of a larger infantilization of our populations. Generally, they want these stories to be kind of like frictionless and lubricated Mm. in a way that I, and, and, and and it kind of makes sense, right? Because we are so helpless and so subjected to a panopticon and so constantly observed and worried about being snitched on by everyone around us just because of our status as sort of alienated late capitalist subjects. Mm. So much of life has turned into just a series of episodes of being babysat and constantly observed and sort of playpins for adults 
Um, that this is sort of a natural outgrowth of an anxiety with nuance and an unwillingness to be challenged in a way that I don't think is the fault of the people who are expressing this, but is, I think, a problem that we need to grapple with, especially in the young adult scene, with how we deal with media in general, because the tone and the content that a lot of people are requesting does a disservice to teens. This sort of like Disney Channel original uh, stand off all the rough edges thing, mm-hmm. even if it's not a story about a, a trans person, does a disservice to teens. <laughs> the love victor of it all. Uh, <laughs> but I don't want to make enemies, so I won't say I don't want to make enemies <laughs> in the YA community, so I won't say anything else. And here I am going to go on a rant. I'm ranting now. I'm raving. <laughs> is that this is not true for every teen. And if you are a teen listening and you are not doing these things, it does, this does not make you, like, not cool that you are not doing these things. Uh, and you should cherish that you are living such a simple uh, such a simple life. But when I was a teen, I did not read books intended for teenagers. I read books intended for adults. And I sought out R-rated movies because teenagers know when they are being babied and they know when they are being talked down to. And they hate it. And when I was a teenager, I was having sex I probably should not have been having. I was consuming drugs and alcohol unsupervised. Um, I was walking around with and we can, we can like, interject a trigger warning before this rape if you want. But I was walking around with suicidal ideation and dissociation from gender dysphoria and from severe bullying I'd experienced as a child. I knew other teenagers who were walking around with trauma from sexual assault and from parental abuse at home and from poverty. When I was a junior in high school, I was working 40 hours a week under the table and trying to make school work and receiving literally just like rolled eyes from teachers. Mm -hmm. And I was, of course, a child because I was a teenager, but I was in many ways thrust into the problems of adulthood, but without any of the power or resources that adults have. Mm -hmm. And Harry Potter didn't do anything for me because those characters felt like babies in a way that I did not feel like I had the time to be. And I think also a lot of the people who are, like, doing these complaints about, like, what children's media should look like are not themselves teenagers. They are adults Mm -hmm. uh, who are, like, that one Simpsons character doing their best to think of the children. Um, Whereas... (laughs) Mod Flanders. (laughs) Yeah, whereas the children are desperate to be taken seriously and to be spoken with honestly about the problems they are experiencing or that their peers are experiencing or that they are aware of in the world around them. Mm-hmm. Right. And you you do it you do it you do them a disservice by dropping them in a foam padded McDonald's play place version of fiction. Mm-hmm. I feel like that really comes out in both of your books. There's an emotional honesty and a willingness to grapple with the murky, difficult things. And I think the books are better for them because they have elements of hope and fantasy in them, but they're also not afraid to tackle the darkness. Right, which I'm surprised they haven't been, like, banned or challenged yet. In a way that my feelings are almost hurt. (laughs) Every year I look at the 10 most challenged books, and it's like, George by Alex Gino is at the top and it's yep. a, it's a it's a fine book and I love Alex Gino but like I read it and like nothing untoward happens in it meanwhile my book has like cigarette smoking and underage drinking and like drug use and no and nobody's challenging it it's like what do I have to do to make these <laughs> what do I have to do to make the mod Flanders of the world mad you know 
I have to correct both of you before anybody writes in. It is Helen Lovejoy we're thinking of. Helen, Helen Lovejoy. Lovejoy. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry to have to cut this short, but um, can we switch over to a kind of fun, hypothetical, optimistic mm-hmm. place and say if either birthday or if I was your girl was ever optioned to become a film, do you have an idea of like who you'd want to write the screenplay or star in it or direct it? Um, I know who I would want to star in it okay. i would want hunter schaefer to play amanda and i would want hari neff to play morgan yes hari neff oh, yeah. i don't know who would play the romantic leads in either book because i am a lesbian and the faces of men are as like glass masks <laughs> that my attention slips off of um and when i wrote both of the love interests i was actually thinking about like butch lesbians that i would like to date and then went back and like fiddled with them to make them into young men um, oh, but can we just have that book instead <laughs> uh hey stay hey stay tuned yeah <laughs> stay tuned for the next one cool like I said, I'm getting I'm getting edgier with everyone. Uh, but we could do with some butch lesbianism in YA. Let's be real. We really could. I will have to figure out how to successfully date a butch person, <laughs> and then I can get back to all of you with that. Okay. <laughs> but who would who would direct it? I don't really know directors. Oh oh oh, and uh, India Moore. I would want as Victoria mm-hmm. in If I Was Your Girl. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of everyone I would cast. And the screenwriter, let's say Charlie Kaufman. I bet I bet he'd do something super weird. Oh wow! Um, okay. With them, you know, like <laughs> I love that the adaptation guy. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's get let's get weird. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want my book. I don't want my book to be made into Love Victor, please. Right. And I feel like bringing in. And and this is this also ties into I will let you go after this but I think one of the things that makes both of the books different that I forgot to mention earlier is that I do read YA but I don't read exclusively YA mm-hmm. and I draw inspiration from a number of incredibly disparate sources and so like if I was your girl was like a John Hughes movie and like a Flannery O'Connor story yes whereas like birthday is in a in a real way like a slice of life manga yeah like uh, Aoi Hana hmm. infused with like Friday Night Lights yes I totally got the Friday Night I got Lights, the Friday Night but... Lights but I hadn't thought of the manga but the pacing really reflects manga now that you say that that's amazing Thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, bring it and so bring in another wild card. Like we're making it into a TV show, bring in someone or something that you wouldn't expect in YA. Yeah. And right. Charlie uh, he's I guess he's my favorite director, I think. Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, bring him in. I love okay. it. I like it. I've been following Angie Thomas's Twitter feed and her disappointment in working with Disney on the Hate You Give film. I think it must be so scary to do this work that you know is important and see the edges getting sanded off it by Mm -hmm. mainstream culture yeah yeah books are not easy to get off the ground but i think the writer creator has a little bit more control in how and when that comes to form whereas unfortunately with television and film there's just there's so many hands and so much money tied to it that it's almost inevitable that the edges do get sanded off that's true. I also think that I'm borderline uncancelable. <laughs> I'm not too worried if something goes wrong. And I also firmly believe, despite being a strident, radical leftist, I think that the anxiety around selling out or compromising your vision is in some ways a very 
it's a problem that ended with Generation X mm. because it's hard not it's hard not to watch Rent and think like <laughs> it's hard not to watch Rent as a millennial and think like I have two jobs. Yes. I, I would lo- uh, you're you have a landlord who let who let you not pay rent for a year. I know. <laughs> like his only requirement for you not continuing to pay rent is like convince your friend not to like protest me. It's hard watching that as a millennial person and being like So true. And your problem <laughs> is that you are being offered a job doing like filmmaking is just yep. not the weird unwatchable garbage that's like <laughs> in your heart. Whereas like for millennials and Gen Z people, as much as generational politics are an op, the CIA wants us to believe in them. They aren't real. But every millennial I know is just like so tired of waiting tables that yeah. like, you know, that oh like gosh, even if yeah. Disney was gonna even if Disney was gonna turn if I was your girl into the new theme for Splash Mountain, I would be like <laughs> I would be unhappy about it. <laughs> But I would also go like, oh, I might finally have a year of my life where January 1st comes, and I know that on December 31st, I will still have money for rent and food. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, oh, what a, yep, what a concept, to quote uh, Smash Mouth. That sounds delightful. <laughs> Not enough people quote Smash Mouth on our show. And They're also, good boys. I would go on that ride. <laughs> I would actually yeah. go on the ride, too. So you heard it here first, <laughs> folks. Meredith Russo's If I Were Your Girl coming to Splash Mountain in 2021. <laughs> Amazing. More like 2020 fun. 2020 fun. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, Meredith, you have been an absolutely delightful interview. This has been fantastic. <laughs> I like a little bit of class politics, a little bit of video game reference, and a little bit of punning. That's like ideal. A little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. <laughs> there um, we go. If people wanted to find you online, where should they go? I am mayor underscore squared on Twitter. I am Frothy Sea Witch on Instagram, but I don't really use Instagram very much in the time of Corona. And I have a Patreon. And if you search Meredith Russo uh, on Patreon, you will find me. And I am doing video game streams and podcasts and posting kind of cut and behind the scenes material from my books. So if that's something you want, you can get it for as low as $3 a month. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Hey, Joe? Yes. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Meredith. This was, I mean, I was really excited because I'm a giant fangirl. And then you were also very fun and interesting. So it's thank like, you. I bet you're perfectly ever. regular sized. <laughs> <laughs> My three year old just learned the word gargantuan. And so Ooh. he is describing everything as gargantuan. So I will say that I am a gargantuan fangirl. <laughs> that's amazing it's been so fun y'all thank you thank you (laughs) so until next time joe um if you want to find us on twitter it's hashtag hkhs pod to get both of us joe where do they find you i am at beast on my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and anything longer of course you can send to hkhs pod at gmail.com keep the minisode ideas coming folks all right that'll wrap us up oh yeah this is good this was really really smooth joe i was about to say (laughs) 